Well, good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. Again, we are excited that you are here on this Independence Day weekend, and it is always an honor to be able to open God's Word with you, God's people, in hopes and prayer that He would change us, that He would uh, transform our very hearts. So today we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or if you're at home, uh, I would encourage you to go ahead and grab a Bible, maybe take some notes, get a pen. Uh, But if you don't have one of those handy, there will be words on your screen if you are in your homes. Before we jump into the scripture today, it's good that we pray and then we'll get going. So pray with me. Father, sovereign over all things, all that you have created is good. And so, Lord, we know that right now we are in the midst of turmoil. We know that there are storms of life surrounding us. And it can be easy to be confused in those times. It can be easy to look to others for consolation, for help, instead of looking to you. And so, Father, now we pray that your voice speaks the loudest. uh, That clarity on issues surrounding everything going on in our world would would be proclaimed by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, Father, convict us now. Encourage us now. And most of all, transform us now. As your name is glorified in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover today, and so I want to do this as easily accessible as possible. Um, Over the last nine months or so, if you've tuned in to television or checked anyone's Facebook feed or maybe gotten on any website at all, you know there's a lot of stuff going on in our world, right? Um, Over the last nine months, the novel coronavirus has swept through virtually every nation on the face of the earth. Uh, Many of us have suffered the disruption of normal life because of that. Many have lost their lives because of that, and the new normal still hasn't sunk in yet. Uh, In the midst of that, oppression and racism in our country and abroad has boiled over with the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and George Floyd. And there's been confusion. There's been everything from peaceful protests to violent riots. And we have a multitude of voices as Christians and just as people in general telling us what to believe, what to think, who to vote for, which lives matter, and who to defund. And there's a a certain lack of clarity in all of these issues. And maybe you're like me and and you sit and you look at Twitter and you look at Reddit and you look at news sources, whichever yours might be. And you go, what am I supposed to think right now? What am I supposed to believe is true? And so today I want to approach the cultural elephant in the room, because if the church doesn't approach cultural elephants, then we're not speaking to the topics and we're not transforming the heart of the city. And so today I want to address from a biblical point of view the issue, the sinful issue of racism. And I want to talk about that as easily and plainly as possible. And I want to provide a few um, principles that we can then apply to racism, classism, and culturalism. And here's the deal. I want to say this. I am not a political person. All right. I'm not making any political stances today. And my common interaction with people as yours are too, are one-on-one. All right. So I want to, I want to see how scripture, primarily Jesus deals with racism in a one-on-one individual basis. And so that's what we're going to do today. 
We have a direct story of this in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4. And as some of you know, the way that I tend to preach is I will read a few verses, stop and talk about it. Read a few verses, stop and talk about it. So bear with me as we do that today. John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 to begin. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, went, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. <clears throat> Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Let's read verse eight as well. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So let me unpack what's going on here. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he is gaining popularity. Jesus is drawing crowds so much so that the Pharisees and Sadducees are beginning to realize he's baptizing more people than John the Baptist. He's causing disruption. He is uh, causing a little bit of unrest for the establishment, if you will, for the Pharisees. And they're not liking it. Jesus is not ready to come out and proclaim who he is, the eternal son of God who holds all power. And so he leaves Judea and he heads to Galilee. If you can picture an image of a map of Israel in your mind, Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north. Right in the middle of those two places, though, as you head north, is an area called Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans, inversely, hated the Jews. And see, for for context, uh, in about 722, 725, the dates vary, B.C., Shalmaneser V from Assyria, uh, the son of Tiglath-Pileser III, I'm sure you're all familiar with them, um, he invaded Samaria and he began to transplant people there from Assyria. And what happened over the course of 750 or so years is interracial marriages occurred. And when those interracial marriages occurred, not only were their genetics mixed, but their cultures were mixed. Their heritage was mixed. Their traditions and their religions were mixed. To the Jews, this was treason. It was blasphemy. It was a disgrace. And so as even the Samaritan woman will say, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Good Jewish people didn't go to Samaria. In fact, what's interesting is verse 4 said, Jesus had to go to Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't, at least geographically, because what would have happened is Orthodox Jews tended to add a day or so extra onto their journey, and they would go all the way around Samaria in order to avoid what they called the Samaritan dogs, the unclean ones. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. Verse 4 tells us he had to go because at noon or the sixth hour that day that you will see in verse 6, a woman was going to come to a well. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? There's a few interesting things going on here, and I want to make them pretty clear. Why does John go into such detail about this well? He spends two verses describing a well. Who cares? See, it's interesting. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews, but they both loved Jacob. They loved Jacob. And this wasn't any normal well. This was a Jacob's well. This was what this is a historic monument. This is a place where they could gather, where they had history. And you see, Jews believed in Jacob, obviously, because he was one of the patriarchs of the faith. But also Samaritans believed that Jacob was a patriarch of their faith. They traced their line through Jacob, Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. They espoused the first five books of the Bible, Torah. So Jesus meets this woman on common ground. Jesus finds something in common with this woman. He goes to a well, this historic monument that united them. You see, there was something different about them. There was something that divided them. But instead of celebrating and um, solidifying those distinctions and barriers in their lives, Jesus meets this woman on common ground. He sits down at a well and he says, will you give me a drink of water? In verse 9, the Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus, he sits down by the well, he's tired, he sends his disciples into town to get some food. So he's all alone with this woman and this becomes critical later in the text. And he sits down and he does something shocking. He says, will you give me a drink of water? Now here's my question. How did she know he was a Jew? He didn't say anything about it. He didn't say, would you give me a Jew water? He didn't say anything like that. So there must be something clearly about Jesus that identified him as a Jew, right? It could have been the color of his skin. It could have been a phrase that he used, maybe his vernacular. Maybe he had an accent or he dressed a certain way. But Jesus was visibly and verbally a Jew. Here's the thing, First Press. Jesus didn't give up who he was to reach across racial and cultural boundaries. Jesus didn't give up being a Jew to reach a Samaritan. He didn't change who he was. He didn't, um, you know, move to Samaria and download an app for, to learn Samaritan and start speaking their language. He didn't change the way he dressed. But he found something in common with this lady. He was visibly and verbally Jewish. He didn't give up who he was. God is not calling you in these trying and difficult times, in these very sensitive times, to give up how he created you. He's not. God created you intentionally and purposefully. You are not a mistake. But Jesus didn't let who he was prevent him from relating to somebody who God created different than him. We cannot give up how God has created us. God is not calling you to be anything different than how he has created you. But God is not desiring for you to utilize how he created you 
as an excuse to not relate to others he has created differently than you. The love of God, the radical love of God transcends race, it transcends culture, it transcends all of these things. And too often we prop up different things as a way to divide ourselves from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God is not calling you to give up who you are, but do not use who you are to relate inappropriately to others. You see, Jesus didn't give up his Jewishness and she didn't give up her Samaritanness, if that's a word, it is now. But yet they found common ground with one another. Then he does something radical. Can I have a sip of your water? You, a Jew, you're asking for a sip of my water. You know I'm a Samaritan, right? Because Jews didn't have dealings with Samaritans. You see, all of Jesus' race and culture would not drink from the cup, but Jesus didn't let his race and culture stop him from drinking from a cup. He didn't let it stand in the way of what God was calling him to do, and that's reach our hands across the railroad tracks that divide us and say, can I have a sip of your water? Can I come eat at your restaurant? Can I come sit at the table with you? Can I come shop in your shop? Can I come to your church? Can I come play on your sports team? Whatever it might be. Can I move in beside you? Jesus is breaking down racial and cultural barriers. And this woman is shocked. This woman is absolutely shocked by what he does. Here's an English lesson for you. Um, I think our, our nation is very guilty of identity politics right now. And I think that has seeped into our church. And what I hear a lot of times is, oh, I'm a white Christian or, oh, I'm a black Christian. I'm a Democratic Christian. I'm a Republican Christian. Um, here's the problem. We make our identity, our race, our culture an adjective, and we put Christianity in the noun position. All right. This is not rhetorical. What is the job of an adjective? Uh, you can look that up later. What did you say? All right, the, the job of an adjective is to modify a noun, right? And so what happens is when you place your culture, your race, your tradition, your political leanings in front of Christianity, all of a sudden you have to mold your faith to look like that thing, that adjective. So all of a sudden your Christianity has to look white. It has to look black. It has to look Republican. It has to look Democratic. Christianity is not a noun, it's an adjective, and it should modify the way that we view our entire lives. So if anything in your mind and your heart and your lifestyle conflicts, what has to be adjusted is the noun of your humanity and not the adjective of your faith. Amen? Because God and the way that he calls us to live transcends politics, it transcends race, it transcends culture. It transcends class. It transcends every other aspect of your life. And Jesus didn't let his culture or his race stop him from drinking from a cup. Not because it was PC, but because it was the right thing to do. And too often I see Christians who are Republican before they're Christian, who are Democrat before they're Christian, who are white before they're Christian, who are black before they're Christian. And we need, if we're going to, if we're going to make any headway into this city, if we're going to transform the heart of this city, we better start being Christian before anything else.
verse goes on. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? Jesus is just meeting on common ground. They're talking about water by a well. Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, I I want that. I don't want to have to come out here at noon, put my mask on, stay six feet away from everybody else at the well. I want the living water. I don't want to have to come out here. It's hot. It's 92 degrees today. I don't want to do that. This is what Jesus says. Go, call your husband. Then come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said, you got that right. You're right there. You were right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I love this next verse. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. I guess so. You just met this guy sitting at a well asking for a drink of water and all of a sudden he's all up in your business. He knows all your background and what's going on in your life. But see, here's what Jesus does. He meets her on common ground. And then through the course of building a relationship, Jesus dives deeper into discipleship. Jesus dives deeper into discipleship. But here's the key. He met her on common ground first. I think too many of us want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have no interest in doing the relational work that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to do. I want you to get to heaven. I just don't want to hang out with you on earth. I want to sit with you at the king's table. I just don't want to sit at your dinner table. I want to sing with you in his kingdom in heaven. I just don't want to sing with you at the pew next to us. And I I know too many people in my own life and maybe even in yours, but all across the world who have rejected God because how can we believe in a God who wants to love me, but his people won't even sit down with me? His people won't even take the time to talk to me and figure out my name. Jesus never once preached to her until after he sat with her. You notice he hadn't given her any Bible yet. He hadn't preached yet and said, I'm God. He just said, can I have a sip of your water? Jesus gained the validity to speak into her life because he drank from the cup. Too many of us want to preach, but we're not willing to drink from the cup. Too many of us want to do outreach, but we're not willing to drink out of the cup. Too many of us want to get people to heaven, but we're not willing to drink out of the cup. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, that sounds kind of racist, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. He gets deeper into her life. He gets deeper into discipleship. And this poor lady who was really blindsided by all of this, uh, she tries to sidestep it. She says this, 
I can see that you're a prophet, right? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Um, Here's what she's saying. Your translations, the NIV says ancestors. The Greek word there is actually pater, which is father. Our fathers taught us to worship on this mountain. Here's what she's saying. Jesus, we were raised different. Our people worship at this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And your people, you worship in Jerusalem. We were raised different, Jesus. My daddy taught me that when I want to get close to God, I go over there. And the reason my daddy taught me that is because my granddaddy taught him that. And the reason his granddaddy taught him that is because his great-granddaddy taught him that. And see, what happens is we take tradition and we take biases and we take our cultural identity and it gets passed on from generation to generation to generation and then that gets locked into systems and places and all of a sudden there's all these divides. And I want to show you what Jesus does. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, now listen to these two phrases, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, we were raised different. My people do it this way. Your people do it that way. Now, the first time she brings up race, Jesus doesn't say anything. But you're a Jew. How can you drink from this cup? He doesn't say anything. It's just a fact. Okay, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, bring it up. But when she tries to use race as a way to perpetuate division, Jesus gives her a whole lecture, especially if you're going to bring God into it. I would not want to be that woman right now. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor on that mountain. Jesus said that what your daddy taught you, what your granddaddy taught you, and what your great-granddaddy taught you were wrong. If you are going to use God as a means to divide people, it's wrong. Let's say that's the Bible, right? That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. And I think too often we reach back into our histories and we want to justify things. We want to justify ways to divide one another because, well, that's just how I was raised. That's what we do. When I was in school, you know, they sat over there. We sat over here. They went, they did this thing and we did that thing. And Jesus said, it's wrong. Okay, it's wrong. If it is in conflict with the word of God, it's wrong. And this is what Jesus is saying to us today, believers, that when our lives are in conflict with his word, with what he has revealed to us through the Holy Scripture, the 66 books of inspired Bible, if your opinion does not line up with that, if how you live your life does not line up with that, I'm sorry, it's wrong. And we have to repent of that. And Jesus begins to say to her, you worship what you do not know because your traditions are wrong. The people that Jesus went after most in his earthly ministry are those that always rested on tradition instead of a living relationship with God. He goes after the Pharisees and Sadducees over and over and over. Why? Because when you worship God, you have to have spirit. And that is, it has to emanate from the right place. It has to be a transformed heart. And then you have to have truth. And truth is an objective standard. It's the word of God. 
There is no debating God's word. Now, look, we can debate politics all day. We can debate um, areas of town to live in all day. I, I don't want to debate those things. I just don't care. But here's the thing. You can't debate God's word. What he says goes. The buck stops there. God says, let every man be a liar and let God be true because the buck stops with God. If our lives do not line up with his word, they're wrong. And we as Christians are called to repent of that. Martin Luther's first thesis out of all 95 was that the Christian life is continued repentance. So let's talk about an example from Scripture, another one. In Acts chapter 10, um, Peter, who is a super Jew, like Peter is very Jewish. He is a purveyor of weapons-grade Judaism. Uh, he's a crawl-over, broken glass for the Ten Commandments kind of guy, Okay. He's praying on his roof, reading the Bible, then all of a sudden, uh, or reading Torah, I should say, all of a sudden a, a blanket comes down from heaven, a sheet. And on that sheet, there are all sorts of unclean food. If you remember back to Levitical law, there was all this dietary system. And God says to Peter, eat. Peter says, oh, God, you know I don't eat those things. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I can't eat those things. He does this three times. And then finally God says, don't you call unclean what I call clean. If I call it clean, it's good to go. I don't, I don't care what your tradition says. I don't care what your people say. If I say it's clean, it's good to go. And so Peter starts eating. And here's the thing. like We're Southerners. We can talk about this. Okay. He gets to eat pork. First time Peter gets ribs. Pork chop. That's good. That's good stuff. Peter, all of a sudden, this whole new world opens up. He's singing. Because he's eating pork chops. So then God says, go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is what is now Italy. He's an Italian Gentile. Not supposed to be there, but God tells him to go. So he goes to Cornelius's house. Now, fast forward. Peter becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. In that church, there are Jews and Gentiles. Okay? They're together now. They're hanging out. They're eating. They're having a good time together. Peter, by this time, is debating whether you should have, um, you know, tomato-based barbecue sauce or vinegar-based. The answer is vinegar-based, but whatever. They're having these debates. And all of a sudden, we learn in Galatians chapter 2 that members from what's called the circumcision, these are Jews, they come. And in Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 4, we learn that in order not to offend his own race, Peter gets up. From the Gentiles and goes and sits with Jews. He stops hanging out with them. All of a sudden, these Judaizers, these people of the circumcision come, and then Peter gets up from the table and he leaves. But it's not just Peter. We learn in Galatians chapter 2 that it was Peter and the rest of the Jews. And it even has this weird line that says, even Barnabas, but we'll get to that. Peter got up. Because he felt this weird pressure when other Jews walked into the room. He didn't want to offend his own people. And then it says, even Barnabas got up. Not Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Why is that? That's weird. I would hate to be Barnabas. That would stink to be like the one guy in all of Scripture where it's like, and Barnabas. I'd be like saying, and Graydon. <laughs> Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Barnabas was from Cyprus. All throughout scripture, he's called the encourager. He's the one that when Peter wanted to dump John Mark, um, you know, Barnabas said, no, he's a good guy. Come on. Barnabas was a peacemaker, actively making peace with people. 
He was raised in Cyprus, which was a Gentile colony of Rome. He was raised around Gentiles. He knew what it was like to go to school with Gentiles. He knew what it was like to be on the same basketball team as Gentiles or the same baseball team. He knew what it was like to go to, you know, Target and there were Gentiles all around him. He knew what it was like. And all of a sudden, when people from his own race show up, he leaves them. Why? Because racism can make a good person bad. It can make good people do really bad things. When you view God's creation as something less than or something different than or something that is worthy of division, it can make even good people do bad things. And you see Peter, who's the leader, gets up and the rest follow him. Why? Because when people who are leaders do wrong things, people who are followers do wrong things. Many of us in this crowd, many of us who are streaming online are leaders in various aspects. And God is calling us to be Christian before anything else. And when leaders lead the wrong way, people go the wrong way. And so in your job, in your family, in your homes, in your social circles, God is calling you to lead in a radical way. And even if it's not the popular thing to do, it's the right thing to do. Because even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy is what it says. Even a good person went astray because the leader led them astray. Where are you leading people? Which way are you shepherding God's people in your life that he has put you over? Because we're all shepherds. Where are you leading them? Are you leading them to extend the hand of reconciliation, to extend the hand of mercy and grace, to extend the invitation to come over to my house or let's go to their house or let's go to their place of business? Are you doing that? You see, they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for Paul. Paul comes into the church in Galatia and he gives Peter the business. I mean, he calls people out. He condemns Peter in public because when you act foolish in public, I think you should get called out in public. And then what's interesting is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture comes at Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Isn't it interesting that at the end of a story about division and racism, that verse comes? Because here's what Paul is saying to Peter. You've got your identity wrong. Your identity is not in the color of your skin or the political party you align yourself with. It's not with how much money you have or where you live or what class you have or are in. Your identity is in Christ first and foremost and everything else submits to that because anthropology and sociology have to bow down to theology in our lives. So let's get back to Jesus and then we'll wrap this up. The woman says, verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. How spiritual. I know that one day he's going to solve everything. It's going to, hey, it's going to be okay in heaven. Everything's going to be, when Jesus shows up, it's going to be all right. And here's what Jesus says. I, the one who speak to you, am he. You're waiting on something that's already here. You're kicking the can down the road, and it can be solved right now. 
We can be the agents of change. Jesus says, I am here. There is no reason for these divides. The good news of the gospel, First Presbyterian Church, people of God, is that our identity is in him. And because of what he has done, we are not better than or less than anyone else. Regardless of the color of skin or political leanings or culture or heritage or whatever it might be, because of Jesus, we are equal. And the inverse of that is because of Jesus, there is no room for division in the church of God. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to the woman. It's not shocking that he's talking to a woman. He's talked to many women at this point. Mary, Martha, the Syrophoenician woman, the woman with the blood disorder. I'm talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town. I got to wrap it up. The woman goes back into town and she tells everyone what's going on. The disciples start talking to Jesus. Hey, we brought you lunch. He says, my food or I've already, you know, I'm full. And he says, my food is to do the will of the father who sent me. They're kind of confused. Peter's upset because he's walked around all day trying to find Jesus food. The Samaritan woman at the same time is getting all the men from the city to come out to meet Jesus. Jesus has this interesting line. It's in verse 35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage. Here's the thing. The disciples would have looked up to the field and what would they have seen? Samaritan men coming to hang out. Jesus literally sets up an instance. God's church is called to set up instances where the dividing walls of our society can be chipped away by what? By drinking from the cup. By sharing a meal. By sitting down and not identifying people by their race, but by, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the content of their character. By just talking to people. That's radical. It's easy to talk about these things in here. It's easy. And you can be upset, maybe, I don't know. But it's easy to talk about the gospel in God's house. It's easy to talk about life change in God's house. It's easy to talk about repentance in God's house. But we as a church have said and we feel that God is calling us to transform the heart of this city. You know what that means? We have to live this out there. We have to do this out there. And if we don't do it out there, don't be surprised if they don't come in here. If we're not showing radical love, a love that transcends race, a love that transcends areas of town, a love that transcends um, everything. If the love of Jesus does not come first and foremost in our lives, don't be surprised if out there isn't transformed and they're not coming in here. Here's what we need. We need radical Christians. We need a few radical Christians. Here's the thing. This doesn't take long. It took us 240 years to get into this mess, but it doesn't take long to get us out, at least on a one-on-one basis, right? Because Jesus goes passing through, then if you keep reading the text, by the end of this interaction, he's hanging out for two days. He's going somewhere where he shouldn't be going, and then all of a sudden they're saying, hey, come hang out for the weekend. Why? Because he took the time to build relationships. He saw people for who they were. Not for how they look. Christians, people of God, God is calling you to see people 
for who they are and not how they look. He's calling you to judge people not on the color of their skin or where they live or their political parties. He's calling you to judge people on the content of their character because the church of God is called to be open and welcoming to every person who professes a love for Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message. Let's pray. Father, this morning I stand here convicted, and I'm sure many of us do as well. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would keep moving, that your Holy Spirit would um, convict and transform us. Father, that we would be people who are serious about the transforming love of Jesus Christ, that when we go to lunch, when we go to the grocery store, when we go to the places we work and play, that we, many of us as leaders, that we would lead people the right way, that because of our actions, others would take those same actions, because of the way we drink from the cup, others would drink from a cup. But Lord, we can't do it without your power. So I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would help us to shy away from any timid interaction. And Lord, to not give up who we are, but to not use who we are as a way to divide people who are not like us. Father, we thank you that you have leveled the playing field and called us into community. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.